So I would request you to stand up so that we can read the word of God. The word of God for today is in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20 to 25. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortation, for I have written a letter unto you in few words. Know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty, with whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. Salute all them that have the rule over you and all the saints. They of Italy salute you. Grace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of God for today. God bless you. you may be seated. So little Douglas Dwight Laird, my future father-in-law, is all of three years old, sitting in the front row of church at First Baptist Church in Monroe, Iowa. Uh, his mother, his father, would have preferred to sit in the back row, uh, but his father was the youth pastor, and 1950s church etiquette required the pastor's families sit in the front. So they're up front... And Dr. Brong, the gray-haired pastor, walks into the pulpit, this massive, massive pulpit. He opens up his big black leather Bible, he sets it down, and he intones the same words that this congregation has been hearing for almost two years now. Open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. And in that infinitesimally small moment where his mother takes his eyes off of him in order to thumb through her Bible to Hebrews. Little Doug stands up on that front row pulpit, or front row pew, and shouts, his voice slicing through the silence. Hebrews again? <laughs> and since we started the sermon series in Hebrews, I have heard that story every single time I have run into Jenna's grandparents. They can't wait to share that story. Now, I never find out what happens next. What do they do next? Uh, my guess is Charlotte, Jenna's grandmother, Doug's mother, leans in, you know, pulls him down, leans in, and uses that, that piercing whisper that only a mother who's been publicly shamed can use. We don't do that, Doug. My guess is that's what she said because I've heard her say that to me. And uh, <laughs> as if all that little Doug was lacking was a little bit of information. Oh, wow, I didn't realize that we weren't allowed to stand up on the front pew and, uh, and comment on the duration of the pastor's sermon series. Well, now that I know we're not allowed to do that, I won't do that anymore. Right, a anybody who's tried to tell a three-year-old something knows information doesn't necessarily mean transformation. Knowledge 
doesn't necessarily mean a change in behavior. And that's important for us to remember and keep in mind. Information doesn't necessarily mean transformation because we are coming to the end of a very information-heavy sermon. The book of Hebrews is a sermon, a homily. If you were to read it out loud, it's a, it would take about an hour uh, to preach what he calls in verse 22 uh, a short letter written to you briefly. And at the end of this information-heavy, doctrinally rich, theologically robust sermon, our author does something interesting. He doesn't say, now you have all the information you need, be transformed. Something more is needed if information is going to become transformation, if the last 38 sermons in Hebrews does more than just fill our minds with more Old Testament allusions and connections, more doctrinal fidelity, more theological richness. Something more is needed. So he prays. So in verses 20 and 21, he prays. This prayer is a wish. It's his last desire for his congregation, those who are reading this letter, hearing this sermon. He prays for them. He has a few things that he wishes. And to summarize it, he wishes, may God equip you and work in us through Jesus. May God, the God who, the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by virtue of the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip us with every good thing that we need to do his will and work in us so that we are pleasing in his sight through Jesus to whom be all glory forever. Amen. Something more is needed if we're going to turn information into transformation. And I'll give you a hint. The answer's not in the prayer. The answer is that he prays. He gets to the end of the sermon and prays. If all of these things we just learned are going to do anything in our lives, something else is needed. God has to do something. So we're going to walk through this prayer, uh, learn what's in it, try to understand what's in it, apply it to ourselves, appropriate this prayer for ourselves so that we can, at the end of this sermon series, pray the same thing that the author of Hebrews is praying, that God would use what we've learned to do something in us. Now, as we go through it, uh, there's an outline to the prayer I want to put up on the screen so that you can follow along with where we are. In these two verses, verses 20 and 21, which is where we're going to spend uh, the majority of our time this morning, the prayer comes in three main parts. God who, please so that, and through Jesus, amen. God, God of peace, who brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, please equip us, work in us so that... We can do your will, be pleasing in your sight through Jesus, to whom be all glory forever and ever. Amen. So we're going to walk through this prayer and then pause for a few moments at the end just to talk about, well, how exactly does this prayer apply to us and how do we appropriate it for ourselves? Let's start with God who from verse 20. Here's the prayer. Here's the wish. Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, 
may God, and then the petition will come later, but before the petition comes, let's talk about how he talks about God. He starts by naming God as the God of peace. This name or phrase applied to God, the God of peace, is significant for two reasons. First, because he's dragging back into this prayer a lot of the, the stuff that he's preached on in the 12 and 13 chapters before this. He's pulling ideas from earlier in the letter and pu- pulling them into this prayer when he calls God the God of peace, the God who resurrected Jesus. He's pulling God of peace from the letter into the prayer, but the second reason that's significant is that God of peace is a new name for God. Or at least it's new in the sort of history of redemption up to this point. In the Old Testament, God is never called the God of peace. He's the God of armies. And the God of mercy. But he's never called the God of peace. Paul is the first one to call God the God of peace in four of his letters in the New Testament. And here the author of Hebrews uses the same language, that God is the God of peace. Something has changed from the Old Testament, from the Old Covenant, to now. God is now, finally, the God of peace. Because as he's explained in this letter, Jesus has broken down every barrier. He has made peace between us and God so that we can come to God now, is the God of peace. If you've been around faith for a while, you've, you've noticed in our services there's a couple of phrases that we use over and over again to remind ourselves of the gospel story, the forgiveness that is offered through Jesus, through the gospel, and then the peace that we find in Christ. The first time we used those words, I was uh, leading communion from right down here, and communion is one of those things that just terrifies me. Um, I'm always afraid I'm going to get the order messed up and we're going to end up forgetting to take the bread or something like that. Uh, So I I grabbed a Presbyterian book of common worship, which has kind of an order of things that you say and that you go through when you're doing communion and other things. And I was using this um, while leading communion standing down here, and First service, uh, I was reading along, reading the words out loud, and I'd read it already you know, ahead of time, but as I was talking and I was saying these words but reading these words ahead, because I do that sometimes, I, I came to these words, know that in Christ you are forgiven and be at peace. And I panicked. I thought, can I say that? Do I have the authority to say that? Can I say that because of your faith in Jesus, you can be at peace right now in this moment? And I'm reading along, and I'm getting closer and closer to these words, and I'm having this theological wrestling happening in my mind while reading these other words out loud. Can I, I think I can say that. I'm a minister of the gospel, and it's not that you have to be a minister in order to say those words, but it's true, right, that because of Jesus, we can be at peace. So I think I can say, I can assure, and then the words were passed, and I'd said them. Hadn't come to a conclusion, but I said the words anyway, and as I said them, I felt more, even more than heard, from the congregation first hour, just this weight being lifted, like a sigh of relief. It, it, it turned out to be one of the most memorable ministry moments for me. Uh, from over there somewhere, I remember hearing a, just a loud sigh as somebody who had just been contemplating their own sinfulness in the context of communion and then heard, because of your faith in Christ, because of Jesus, you are forgiven. Be at peace. 
and it's like a weight was lifted. And I love the singing. I love the time of worship together. I love reading scripture together. I love preaching and sitting under the preaching. But more than all of that, at this point now, I will show up for church if all we do is declare the gospel, assure one another of forgiveness, and communicate that we can be at peace. For me, personally, that's what my soul's craving every Sunday morning when I walk in, is simply to hear that through faith in Jesus, you are forgiven. Be at peace. We've talked in this sermon series about how God is the God of rest. He's the God of peace. He's the God of shalom that has come up throughout the book of Hebrews. Chapter 3, chapter 4, there is a rest that is coming. There's a rest we can now have because of God, because of what he's done through Jesus. And in one of the sermons somewhere along the way, we talked about Jesus being a greater sacrifice, the only sufficient sacrifice that once for all covers our sins and atones for our wrongdoing, makes us right with God, and because of that, we can confess our sins and be at peace. We don't have to keep confessing over and over and over again as if the thing that redeems us is our attitude towards our own sinfulness. We confess, God forgives, and we can be at peace. If you're one of those who has come to faith in Christ, come to a relationship with God through the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus that the author of Hebrews has been telling us about for 13 chapters, and you've confessed your sins and you're not at peace, why not? What are you really relying on and looking for to find rest? See, peace is not just the absence of conflict. Peace is when every part in a system works together towards some ultimate goal, in this case, fulfillment in, in a relationship with God through Christ. Peace is when every part works towards the whole. We can feel, maybe cognitively, that we're at peace with God because of forgiveness, uh, the forgiveness we have in Christ, and yet still be looking for other things to be working right in order for us to find that peace. A couple months ago, I pulled a muscle in my back uh, shoveling rock. And for a month, I couldn't lay down and rest because one muscle, one part of the whole reminded me that it had different ideas than the rest of my body and was working towards some other end, some other goal, apparently, of keeping me awake at night or keeping me from walking normally or lifting things normally. When everything isn't working towards that one sort of ordered purpose, there's no peace, there's no rest. Hebrews tells us that God is the God of peace, of shalom, of rest. But where do we look? Some of us are just waiting for that job offer to come through. If it comes, we could have peace. Some of us are just waiting for that raise. Boy, if I could make just a little bit more in my paycheck, get a little bit more stocked away from retirement, then I, I could rest, I could stop worrying, I could be at peace. If I could save a little bit more for my kids' college, I wouldn't have to worry about it. I'd be able to guarantee, you know, with my money that they're gonna be okay because I can get them a good education. 
What are we longing for? What are we waiting for? What are we looking for to bring us peace? Is it getting along with that friend, that coworker, that boss? Maybe if we could just get through one conversation with our spouses without it turning to an argument, we could be at peace. Or if our kids would stop breaking our hearts with the decisions that they're making, if they just listened to us for once, if we could get through one week without a call from the school office, we could be at peace. What is it that you're holding on to that you're saying, okay, God, thank you, you've forgiven me. Now, if you would just give me this, I could finally rest. None of those things are bad. We rarely replace God with bad things. We almost always replace him with good things that we want more than him. But Hebrews reminds us God is the God of peace, not our job. That's not the God of peace not our paychecks or our families, not our ideas of our future or our perspectives on ourselves. None of those things are the God of peace. God is the only source of peace. He's the only means of peace. He's the only way that we'll find ultimate rest. Peace isn't a location on a map that you can go to. It's not a way of life that you can live. It's not a perfectly orchestrated series of life hacks that you can put into practice. God is peace. None of those other things. So when the author of Hebrews begins his prayer by appealing to the God of peace, he's appealing to the God with whom we now have peace and can be at rest because of the sacrifice of Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice of Christ. That comes through as he keeps praying. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead, who led out from the land of death, our Lord Jesus. This is actually the only time in the letter that the resurrection of Jesus is mentioned. It was a bit surprising. It's been implied or assumed all the way through, but now he makes it clear as he prays, the God who brought Jesus back from the dead, Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. Again, the only place in Hebrews where Jesus is called shepherd and we're called sheep. Because now we're, we're not looking backwards at what Jesus has done so much as now we're looking forward at, w- at what he's going to do in us and through us as he leads us. Now, may the God who brought back from the dead that great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. By the blood of the eternal covenant. It's like one phrase that summarizes the entirety of the book. See, the author of Hebrews sees in Jesus the fulfillment of the Old Testament Day of Atonement ritual. We've been talking about that throughout this whole series, how in the Old Testament ritual, the the priest would go in with a bull, with a goat. He would take the blood of the sacrificed animal, sprinkle it inside of the temple, and purify uh, the place, purify himself, and purify the people, make sanctification for the people, make purification for the people, make atonement for the people. And the author of Hebrews sees in that, that picture, or sees in that a sort of precursor for Jesus. That what Jesus did in serving as both the priest over the sacrifice and the offering being sacrificed, that what Jesus did was to take his own blood not into the earthly temple or tabernacle, but into the heavenly sanctuary 
sprinkle it before the altar, the heavenly altar, and by his once-for-all sacrifice, his once-for-all sprinkling of the blood, make atonement. Full, eternal, complete, never-to-be-repeated atonement for his people. And then God raised him again from the dead by virtue of the blood of the eternal covenant, the covenant that will never end, the covenant that will always last, the covenant under which, we, under which we can always approach God as the God of peace. Through Jesus, by virtue of the blood, Jesus was raised. By the power of the blood that Jesus offered, he was raised again, having ratified an eternal covenant. And now, now we can approach God in prayer as the God of peace, the one who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep by virtue of the power, the, the sufficiency of this sacrifice that ratified a once and for all eternal covenant. There's a lot in verse 20. God who? Do your prayers start like that? Just out of curiosity. Now, God, the God of peace, who has done all these things? Pastor Nathan and I were talking about uh, this structure of prayer and how the, the author uses, he, just doesn't, he doesn't just say, God, equip us. He says a lot of things about God, and Nathan said something really profound. Uh, this author is appealing to God as the God of peace. That's how he names God. And what we need to remember, Pastor Nathan said, is we just isn't one of God's names. You know, God, we just pray that you would. God, we just ask that you would. God, we, we just need you to dot, dot, dot. Now, there's nothing wrong with those prayers. Uh, often, the, those are just the words that come to us naturally, but what the author of Hebrews is kind of challenging us here in this thoughtful prayer that he's offering that encapsulates the entirety of his sermon and applies it then to our lives is he's saying, think about who God is. Think about what God has done, because in who he is and what he's done, you find the reason to ask. See, verse 20 is God who, and God who relates directly to please so that. God who relates directly to please so that. So let's move on to the second part of the prayer, which is the first half of, or most of verse 21. God, you are the one who is the God of peace. You are the one who has raised Jesus from the dead. So we ask, please equip us. Well, technically he says equip you as he prays for them. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will and work in us. Work in all of us collectively as a church. Work in us that which is pleasing in your sight, God. Equip you, equip us, work in you, work in us. It's two requests. There's nothing particularly profound about these two requests, except this interesting fact that he has to ask. 
If information necessarily led to transformation, he wouldn't need to ask God to work in us and equip us to take everything that we've learned in the last 12 or 13 chapters and do something with it in our lives. If gathering more information, if sanctification by information transfer worked, there'd be no need for this prayer. He'd finish the sermon and say, now go do it. What more do you need? Except he stops to pray, and when we stop to pray along with him, and we pray this prayer for ourselves, we are, maybe even if we don't, we may not even realize it, but we're silently acknowledging that we can't do anything without God doing something first. When we pray, God, you're the one who raised Jesus from the dead, equip us with everything good that we need to do your will, and work in us so that we're pleasing in your sight, we're saying, I don't have what it takes to do your will. Notice he doesn't pray, help us to know your will, but to do your will. The assumption is we already know. And if you missed it, just go back and read the first 12 chapters. There's a lot in there about what God wills for us. The, the assumption is we know what it is, we just we don't have what it takes to do it, and that without God working in us and working in us individually and as a whole, we won't be pleasing in his sight. The first word and the first action in our salvation and in our sanctification is God's, but the last word in our sanctification and in our salvation is also God's. We do nothing, we become nothing without God working in us. We collect the information, we go to the classes, we do another study, we, we attend another class, we fill up but transformation doesn't happen unless God takes it and uses it, equips us, works in us. So this is what he prays. God, equip us, work in us. And like I said, there's nothing magical about these two words. There's nothing really profound about them. The actual beauty of this prayer is in its ambiguity, that the author doesn't necessarily know what uh, everything good is for you, or me, or us. It's like, you know, you pray for somebody and you don't know what they need or, or what needs to be done for them to do God's will, so you, so you pray like, uh, look, I know you have a need, I don't know what it is, but I pray that God will supply all your needs. What are they? I don't know, he does. I'm just gonna leave the door open for him to decide what it is. So when he prays, equip us with everything good, work in us that which is pleasing, uh, the author is leaving this open in a sense to say, I don't know what God is going to do. I don't know how he's going to equip you. I don't know what he's going to give you or what he's going to require of you or what he's going to put you through, but I know whatever it is, it comes from him. That means it's good. It's a good gift. It's part of everything good, and it is always and only working towards you having what you need to do his will and being what you need to be pleasing in his sight. It's like praying, uh, may God grant us what we ought to have and make us what we ought to be. Which sounds like a great prayer, except if you remember the context of this church, they're being persecuted for their faith, they're being socially ostracized, uh, they're Chapter 10 told us they had joyfully put up with the plundering of their property. Uh, their financial assets are being stripped away from them. 
their social status is being stripped away, their ability to make a living, their ability to operate within the culture they find themselves, their respectability, it's all being stripped away, and the author prays, may God continue to do, it, do to you and through you what he deems is worthy so you can do his will and be pleasing in his sight. Boy, if we pray that prayer for ourselves, what might God do? What might God send our way? If it's true that he has broken down every barrier between us and him through the sacrificial death of Jesus, through the offering of Christ, if God has already given everything so that you and I could be with him, then there's nothing he can't ask us to go through. There's nothing he can't ask us to give up. There's nothing he can't ask us to do. If by asking it means we will learn how to do his will and we will become a people that is pleasing in his sight. And if we pray this prayer, what might God do? Are we willing to let him? God, do what you need to do to make us what you want us to be. You're the God who raised Jesus from the dead. There's nothing bigger than that. You can do anything. You can do everything. You can ask everything of us. Do what you will. Ask what you will. But do it through Jesus, he says at the end of verse 21. Through Jesus Christ. Equip us through Jesus Christ. Work in us through Jesus Christ. And that's important. It's not just an add-on. He's not just saying, and in Jesus' name, amen. He's saying, through Jesus, work in us, equip us. Because if it's through Jesus, he is never taking us anywhere. He hasn't already gone himself. He is never asking us to do anything he hasn't already done himself. He's not asking us to give up any more than he has already given up himself as he gave up fellowship, communion, perfect rest with God our Father and left all of that to come and be our sacrifice. He's not asking us to give anything more than he hasn't already given for us. So whatever God asks of us, if it's through Christ, we can do it with God's help. He both asks and answers the prayer at the same time through Jesus. Now, through Jesus also means that as it comes to this uh, idea of equipping us, of working in us, that it's Jesus himself who is doing the equipping, who is doing the working. It, it's what um, logic type people, logicians would call the efficient cause, uh, what you and I would call the guy who does the thing. You know, you have a pile of wood, and you can turn it into a table so that you can eat dinner at it. Well, somebody has to do the turning of the wood into the table, the carpenter, the woodworker. That's the efficient cause, the guy who does the thing. In this prayer, Jesus is the, the woodworker, the the carpenter, the guy doing the thing. He's saying, look, take the raw material that is us 
And we know the design. The design is that we would be equipped to do His will and be pleasing in His sight. That's what it's going to look like, like the table. That's the end goal, or that's the the end product, so that the result is that we would do His will. We'd be pleasing in His sight. We we know what it looks like. Who's going to do the work? Jesus does the work. Through Jesus, through the work of Jesus, equip us work in us. God, do whatever it takes in us to make us pleasing in your sight so we can do your will, but do it through Jesus. Do it through Jesus, through his active work, because as we've been reading, he's not taking us anywhere. He hasn't already gone. Through Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. And grammarians argue about this verse, to whom, is whom God or is it Jesus? I say both. And we'll throw the Holy Spirit in there too. He can have glory forever and ever as well. To to God, to Jesus, to the Spirit, to God the Trinity, three in one, be glory forever and ever for taking what we have learned, what we have studied, what we have thought about, taking it and working transformation in us through his word as he has promised. Through Jesus, amen. God you are the God of peace. The one who has raised Jesus from the dead, our great shepherd of the sheep by, by virtue, by the power of his blood that ratified the eternal covenant. Now, may you, because of all that, may you equip us with every good thing we need so that we can do your will. May you work in us so that we as a people, as a, as a collective, as a body, are pleasing in your sight. But do it through Jesus and all glory will go to you forever and ever. Amen, he says. So if if you've been wondering, okay, 39 sermons from the book of Hebrews, 39 of them, congratulations, you made it through. And by the way, um, we have two of these journals left of the 200 we bought. So if you never went and got one of these, I have two free ones up here, you can come get them later. 39 sermons we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews, and if you're getting to the end and wondering, okay, well, now what do we do? Besides pick another series for next week. We're going to Jonah, by the way, the world's worst missionary. It should be fun. It'll be good for Faith Missionary Church, right? But if you've gotten all the way to the end of Hebrews and said, okay, what do we do with this? I think we do what any good pastor does at the end of a sermon. Praise. He says, all of that, all of that that we just talked about, everything that we just thought through, everything that we tried to get into our heads and put in a way that would stick and and try to make it so that we would remember it tomorrow, all of that, God, is nothing. It's nothing if you don't use it to equip us and work in us. It's just more knowledge. It means nothing, it does nothing if, God, you don't do something with it. So we come to the end of a sermon, we come to the end of a sermon series, and all that's left is to pray, because God's the one who has to do the work. God's the one who has to work in us. Now, we have have obligations, right? He goes on in verse 22, bear with my word of exhortation. Uh, Word of exhortation is a, a euphemism for sermon. Bear with my sermon, bear with me. I tried to make it short. It didn't work, but I tried. Bear with me, do what I've said, 
Listen to my warnings. Think on the things I've preached to you, but don't do that without praying. God, if we're going to become what you want us to be, if we're going to do what you want us to do, you have to do the work in us. We can't do it in ourselves. We don't have what we need. We're not strong enough. We're not pleasing enough on our own. God, you're the one who has to do it. So do it. Work in us. So we're going to end this morning by praying. It's all that's left. I'm going to use a prayer that was written by one of the professors in our denomination seminary. If, uh, if anyone knows that information does not necessarily lead to transformation, it's seminary professors. Um, if it did, the seminarians in the room would be the most holy ones here, but you can ask my wife. I am not that holy, and I went to seminary, a really good one, too, for an extra year because that's the way Dallas does it. Sorry, that was, a, that was a bash on the Trinity grads. It's sort of inside baseball thing. Um, moving on. Seminary professor who wrote a, a prayer. He calls it a prayer for spiritual reformation that if anything is going to come of this, God will have to do it. So, as we close Hebrews, and we close this morning, pray with me. And now, Lord God, we ask your blessing on all who hear this message. For without your blessing, there would be no real benefit. We may have more information, but not compassion. We may have ways of praying, but no fruitful adoration and intercession. We may have words, but be lacking in deeds. We may thrill your people, but not transform them. We may expand their minds, but display too little wisdom and understanding. We may amuse many, but find few who are solidly regenerated by your blessed Holy Spirit. So, Father, we ask for your blessing, for the power of the Spirit, that we may know you better and grow in our grasp of your incalculable love for us. Bless us, Lord God, not with ease and endless triumph, but with faithfulness. Bless us with the right number of tears and with minds and hearts that hunger and thirst for righteousness, a zeal for truth, a love of people. Bless us with the perspective that weighs all things from the vantage point of eternity. Bless us with a transparent love of holiness. Grant to us strength in weakness, joy in sorrow, calmness in conflict, patience when opposed or attacked, trustworthiness under temptation, love when we are hated, firmness, farsightedness, when the culture prefers new and different. We beg of you, holy and merciful God, that we may be used by you to extend your kingdom widely, to bring many to know and love you truly. We ask that you would transform us as the greatest outworking of your mercy. And we, grant, we ask that you would grant above all that our lives will increasingly bring glory to your dear Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And now may the God of peace who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip us with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.